everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Richard Ross. Hey, Richard. What's up, man? Hey, how are you doing? Good, good, good. Excellent. So Richard is a very, very interesting guy. I think I first became aware of Richard when I saw a picture of him with an octopus on his head and wondered, who is this guy? And here's that picture. <laughs> but, but more on that in a little bit. Anyway, Richard has kept saltwater animals for over 30 years, has worked in the aquarium industry and trade in maintenance, retail, and wholesale, and has consulted for a coral farm and fish collecting station in the South Pacific. He has also written an article series about skeptical reef keeping, and we'll talk about that, has done groundbreaking work with Suplopod, did I pronounce that right? Husband, you did. Oh, cool. And has been a speaker in industry conferences, including Magna. He also managed the 212,000 gallon reef tank in the Steinhardt Aquarium in the California Academy of Sciences and has spawned Acropora in closed systems as part of the Albright Coral Spawning Lab slash graduate work at CAS. Additionally, this is pretty cool. He won the 2015 Masna Aquarius of the Year Award. Yeah. I did. And his work has been covered by Scientific American, National Geographic, Animal Planet, Penn's Sunday School, NPR Science Friday, Discovery News, Fox News, and more. Hey, Richard, man. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. That uh, Hearing that bio read aloud makes me sound like someone i would want to listen to (laughs) (laughs) well a lot of people have listened to you and and uh we've got a whole bunch of folks that are are tuning in and scotty damron thanks for tuning in battle ocr simulated reality john reef of vermont who else we got scotty mcmillan macy's daddy braveheart reefer 525 hey greg carroll is uh watching as well so folks really i um i encourage you to ask Richard, a lot of questions. We're going we're gonna to try to cover a lot of ground in, in the hour or so that we're going to be on here. And, and um, I'm, I'm excited about this show. I, like I mentioned, I think I first became aware of you, Richard, when I saw that, that picture of the octopus on your head. What, what's the story yeah. behind that, man? That uh, did it. Did it uh, I, I would have been worried that the thing would have like the claw would have like got into my head and I got would have sucked by the tentacles and all that sort of thing. But what's the story behind that? So we were in Tonga working with a startup uh, coral and fish collecting station that was opening up there. So we went there to help them figure out what corals would be good to collect and also to help set up the whole station and the holding facility and, and the fragging and the grow out and all of that stuff. So we were out collecting one day talking about responsible and sustainable collection, right? Because if you're going to set it up, it might as well be like that. And, uh, and it was all with local guys at the time. So it was all lo- local people, local divers. And we were out somewhere uh, snorkeling around and an octopus came by. And uh, one of the guys went back up to the boat and got a claw hammer, came down and started um, flipping big chunks of the reef and trying to beat this octopus with a hammer. And I was like, what? Um, and so then we got back up to the boat and I said, what was all that about? Because I was like, we just talked about being responsible and you just flipped a whole bunch of the reef trying to catch this octopus. There are easier ways to catch the octopus. Um, and they said, well, they'll bite you. If you touch them, they bite you. So that's how you have to 
catch them. And I said, no, they won't bite you. And I grabbed the octopus and I put it on my head. And I went, see? And luckily it didn't bite me because it could have, but it didn't. And I pulled it off and put it away. Um, so that's kind of the story of that picture. If 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 that wasn't the story of that picture, um, I probably would not have put it in my head. Or sh or if I did, I would not have shared that picture around. Uh, but the idea that uh, um, the difference that people think between you know um, hobby collection and food collection because they were going to eat the octopus, um, all of a sudden responsibility often goes out the window in the in the attempt to get food. So um, we saw another octopus later, and I. Showed Showed them how to catch it just by taking a little bit of time and letting it come out by itself, essentially. And they were very impressed with that. So that was cool. Well, octopus are, are, are very mysterious. They're animals, right? Or are they uh, are they actually fish? Yeah. They're animals. Yeah, they're they're very mysterious. They're I I fear them. <laughs> but uh, so you're a <laughs> you're a brave man. But uh, yeah, I mean, is it is it um, possible to? safely keep an octopus in an aquarium without having to worry about it getting out and running along on the carpet? It is, but you got to do a whole lot of stuff. Um, so I actually, for the first time in a while, I have a new octopus back there. Yeah, let's there. talk about what, 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 what we got behind you. That's uh, uh, the octopus or the whole thing in general? Start with the octopus and we'll get to the rest the of octopus. it. Yeah. Um, so the octopus is going to go in one of the tanks by itself, um, but the lids aren't ready yet. Um, and, and it's also small, so it's okay for it to be in a critter keeper for a while. But, the, you know, you have to be a nut. Well, first of all, you got to be a nut to keep a reef tank, right? I mean, you just kind of got to be nutty um, to deal with all the things you need to deal with. It's one thing uh, after another, it, isn't it? It's always something. One thing after another, and you're always learning something new. And, and the philosophy, uh, your husbandry methodology, that philosophy that you were going with, um, you learn new things and go, well, that was wrong. Um, octopuses make that much higher, much harder. There's much more involved because they're just more complicated animals to keep. Um, so I think I generally try to discourage people now. I, I wrote something for Practical Fish Keeping, which was uh, about octopuses, which was pretty much don't uh, unless you are insane and are going to take all of these steps um, because – you know, the idea that an octopus was collected 10,000 miles around the world from someone brought to their house and then escaped because they didn't make a lid is just tragic and horrible, and we should avoid that. Um, so if you're going to be a nut and you want an octopus, I, I suggest everyone goes to tonmo.com, T-O-N-M-O.com, and hang out there and see what people are talking about and how to keep them and all that kind of stuff, and then decide if it's something they really want. It really shouldn't be a... The, the main problem is you never know what you're going to get, you know. So you could get an octopus that's going to stay the size of a quarter its entire life or that's going to be four feet across. Really? So, yeah. So you really want to you want to know what you're doing um, in, in case something bad like that happens to you and you get animals you don't actually want. And, and, and they can grow to a large size even in a small tank or do you need like a large tank? Potentially to have a large octopus. They'll, they'll, they'll be very happy and outgrow a tank. Wow. Uh, and they grow much faster. I mean, fish will do the same thing. They can get stunted. We could go back and forth about the reality of that. Uh, but an octopus is really only living a year or two years. Hmm. So it's going to have this incredible growth very quickly. So the idea that you're going to upgrade something when the octopus gets too big, you really don't have time for that. You kind of got to have that set up when you get the animal. 
So I, I, I hunted hard to get this one and contacted a collector in Florida, KP Aquatics, to get this one. Uh, it's an Occupus uh, homolinky, and uh, they were saying they really only see them a few times a year. Um, so uh, I was very, I'm very happy to get this one. And I know what it is. I know who collected it. I know the size it's going to get. So my tanks are all, all set up properly for them. You know what you're getting into. Yeah, KP Aquatics. I actually got some live rock from those guys uh, a few months ago for my new 225-gallon Peninsula tank, and it was really awesome stuff. It just came loaded, loaded with uh, biodiversity and some little critters in there. So pretty cool that's, stuff. So that's Rich, good to Richard, um, explain a little bit more in terms of, well, how about give, give us a little uh, tour in terms of what, what's behind you besides the octopus tank. So this is the secret home lab. It's uh, connected to uh, my display tank. I have a 150-gallon footprint tank uh, in the living room, which is way over there. And um, all the life support, the sump and everything that makes noise pretty much is under the house in the crawl space. And everything's plumbed together now. So I could run this as a standalone system, uh, but it just uh, when I stopped doing cooler water animals here, it made more sense to make it one big system. So this is the secret home lab. This is the new version that we redid. Um, sorry, I just got a glimpse of my insane COVID hair from the side <laughs> uh, on the stream. Um, are, you, are you doing your own haircuts or the wife is doing I'm that for you? I'm not doing any haircuts. I <laughs> shave it underneath when it gets long. Otherwise, I leave it. Um, and I've been wearing a lot of hats. but um, So you get to enjoy this view. Um, <laughs> which I have no idea what it looks like until it comes up over here. Uh, so this is the new uh, version of the lab. Uh, I had an old system, an old version that grew over 10 or 15 years, you know, with hodgepodge equipment I got from here or there. Decided if I was going to do coral spawning in here, I wanted to start clean. So we went with the aluminum stands and I had Ben Johnson come out and he helped me set it all up, which always makes it more fun uh, in February of last year. Um, so these are about 70, 80 gallon tanks. Um, currently they're set up, uh, they, the flow goes from the top tank to the tank below it and then back to the sump. So it's really two kind of systems right in here. And um, yeah, this, the ones are set up for coral spawning um, so I can completely close them off. I took the doors off because it's a kind of a better view with them on for a live stream. And uh, yeah, and I really love the new system. This uh, having them do the stands for you out of the aluminum is really pretty great uh, and pretty easy. And uh, yeah, and I like the whole thing is pretty clean. I've been moving stuff around and prepping for that octopus, so there's some cords and stuff dangling around where they normally aren't. I also upgraded the lights in here recently in the last week. So, and I got a new desk, like I was telling you before yeah. we came on. So the office is in a little bit of flux in the secret home lab right now. Well, the secret home lab is looking pretty sharp to me. Thanks. Should should, should we uh, show your um, video of your 400-gallon tank and um, sure. talk a little bit about that while I'm playing it? Let's, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to start rolling that now, and it's probably going to take about um, 20 seconds or, or so for you to kind of see it. But I guess you yeah. can start talking about it anyway because you know it's like uh, – Nope. Nope. So the walk. tank – the tank is set up uh, kind of to be a three-zone tank. Um, it's set up to have a lot of overhangs and caves um, that don't show well on the video or on on, um, on photos, unfortunately. But that's really not what the tank is for. And the bottom half is really set up to be uh, NPS, non-photosynthetic, and the top is all um, 
mostly SPS. Uh, and what you're seeing now is a feeding video. I think it's about an eight minute video. Um, and it, uh, it, go, it shows about an hour's worth of feeding uh, and different kinds of food. So I feed a lot. Um, I feed a lot. And so my, my nitrates, and you can see it from time to time, like uh, right now I'm dumping in food in the back, uh, mostly for corals. And the fish eat that as well. Uh, so my nitrates run around 50, and my phosphate runs around point anywhere, depending on where I am in the testing of the lanthanum dosing I'm doing, anywhere from like 0 0.2, 0 0.15, all the way up to 0.9. It's been as high as like 1.5. Um, so it bounces around in there. I think the last time I tested it a month ago was point, 0.95. Um, but I feed a lot. I feel like these are animals and they need to eat. Um, and I don't want to skimp on that. And what else do I think about that? I think algae is uh, really a product of the lack of herbivores uh, and not really something you can control by messing with the, the parameters of the water column. Um, I've seen too many tanks with uh, a lot of algae and uh, low nutrients in the water column and uh, too many tanks with uh, the opposite of whatever the one I just said. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I really like this tank. It's, it's like 18 years old now in its wow. current place. Um, it's built in, um, yeah, oh, and it looks much different. This is a, a eight month old video or so. The, uh, the stag on the right is now, you know, big, it's a head that's all branchy and big and nice. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it right now. I may switch lights, so uh, and I need to do a lot of pruning in that tank. So tonight I'm all set up to actually make a nice one-minute video of the tank, and then in the next week go in with a bunch of tools and chop stuff up. No, it looks it looks beautiful. Well, 18 years that's that's a uh, that's a very mature tank, Richard. So what what are you doing in terms of lights on that lighting on that tank? Did did um, you start with like metal halides, T5s in that tank, and and migrate away from that? What what's uh, what's up with the lighting? This tank started with halides, um, halides and um, actinic supplementation of the day. So whatever it was, it, it became. Um, now the supplementation is like uh, the Reef Bright uh, XHOs. Right. I think those are great for actinic. Um, and then um, currently it's got Radeon G4 Pros on it. And um, that's working pretty well. But I did start with the halides. I, I, I had someone modify some of the Luminarc fixtures uh, so I had actually four bulbs, two bulbs in each fixture. Oh, really? Uh, 250 watts instead of 400 watt. Um, so I could do, you know, the coral growing wider light that was less attractive um, on. But uh, for my viewing pleasure, I could have like the Phoenix bulbs or whatever I wanted to have running. Um, so uh, it, it found it very useful for the way I like to look at my tank to have the four bulbs rather than the two. Yeah, I still have two Luminarc fixtures over my 75-gallon uh, frag tank. I run 400-watt 20K radiant bulbs on that, and um, no. I've always been a metal halide person, so my new tank, though, is going to be the first venture for myself into the LED world. What What's your uh, thoughts in terms of the halides versus LEDs and the effectiveness of, of uh, LEDs to grow coral? I mean, what have, what have you seen in terms of your experience? I think effective is now at this point, I think they're just as effective. Um, you know, that said, I still have my ballasts in place and I have my fixtures 
under the house, um, although it's been six years or something since I switched over. Uh, I think, though, the benefits of LEDs are huge. Um, and I, namely in that I don't have to change bulbs every eight months or however, you know, however long people think it. I used to change them every eight to ten months, especially the blue ones. Um, and that waste always bothered me. Uh, so the idea of uh, just putting a fixture on and then it's probably good for four or five years at least um, seems pretty great. Uh, it's, it, it, I'm sorry. It doesn't seem pretty great. It, it is. is great. I, I very much enjoyed that. Also, you know, not having um, not worrying about a bulb shattering or getting water on it or having to clean it in quite the same way. And then, you know, the controllability and the customizability has just gotten so good. Um you know, I'm sure. I'm sure in a new kind of light soon. I'm. I probably won't even need the XHOs. Uh, you know, they'll put enough blue in them at the right, in the right places that that supplementation will now all be in one box, which I think will be great too. Do you? So yeah. Do you? Yeah, now. Do you uh, tweak a lot in terms of your uh, lighting in the LEDs, or are you kind of like a set it and, and forget it type of person in terms of? Um, um, it depends on what's going on. And, you know, some of these I tweak. Now I have a, a virtual outlet on my controller that I can uh, put on. Oh, I, I didn't do it for all of them. That lowers the light so they look better on camera like this. Uh, and then a bunch of ones where I can, um, you know, that if I want to change a different view, like I have a button I press that's disco, and then it puts all the blues on, and then I look at it as, as really disco, because sometimes I like to look at it like that. Um, but as the schedule goes, you know, like the graph and the lights, which you'll find out about. Well, I'm sure you know about it, but you'll experience when you get the LEDs. Um, pretty much get that set and then leave that alone and only tweak it when I want to look at it in a different light. How important is blue light in, in terms of the spectrum for uh, SPS, would you say? Is is that something... I mean, you're, you're, I saw certainly some hints of blue in the, uh, in the tank. So uh, do you run a uh, more of a blue spectrum than, uh, say, a white spectrum? It, uh, it changes throughout the day, yeah. so I get all of it. Um, but I think the blue is pretty important. Uh, in the times of metal halide, you know, the idea of adding uh, blue supplementation made a huge difference, I think, in the color and growth of, of the corals for me. Uh, that was my experience of it, so I'm a big fan of it. Um, I think as a main driver, um, the corals will be fine with whatever color you prefer to look at. Um, uh, and I think now, especially with the LEDs, you can, you can blend so, so it can look good to the eye, but you still have blue light in there. Uh, and I think, I think that's important. I think it's important for the, the corals that we're keeping and the colors we like to keep them at. Yeah. I've always been a, um, you know, with, with running the 400 watt radiant bulbs, a crisp white with that hint of blue. And so it's definitely getting uh you know taking some getting used to in terms of having the uh the bluer lighting with the leds so yeah um, but uh, you know they do bring out the fluorescence and the corals which is pretty cool yeah and uh, you know the main reason i was excited to move from metal halides was where i live we get about four weeks where it gets above 90 degrees uh 95 or so and they're not all together and um you know, on those days, if I wasn't paying attention or before I had a controller, um, if it got hot on those days and those metal halides were baking as well, the tank temperature would, yeah. would skyrocket. Um, so I, re I used to watch the uh, 
<laughs> we used to watch the weather forecast and turn them off before I went oh, to work. Really? It was going to be a hot day. Um, you know, now with controllers, they just they go off by themselves at whatever set point you want. Yep, yep. So, Richard, in terms of the calcium and alkalinity supplementation yeah. for that tank, are you using a calcium reactor? Are you using two-part calcwasser? Calcium, re calcium reactor. I think at at a certain size, it just uh, it becomes not cost-effective to run two-part. Um, although I've got a bunch of ESV downstairs because I was thinking of trying to run them both at the same time. But I may or may not do that now. But, uh, yeah, the calcium reactor works pretty well. Um, and it keeps the keeps everything where I want it to be. You know, there's been a lot of conversation, you know, in, in the reef keeping community, it seems like about pH and, uh, you know, a lot of people that run calcium reactors will, um, you know, try to get that pH to go up. What, what do you do with your, um, you know, do you have an issue with, with pH in your tank running that calcium reactor? And if so, what do you do to try to like boost it up a little bit? I bubble in outside air. Uh, into the sump and I actually just did a pH test because uh, the the tanks behind me don't get a very high turnover from the sump um, They probably turn over two or three maybe four times a day So I was curious if the pH was gonna drop uh, especially in the winter here now everything is closed Yep all the windows um, and I ran a pH uh, with a pH pen. It's the same in all the tanks um, so So that's not an issue um, I, I don't I uh, I think a lot of the pH problems I see people talk about are from closed windows, not 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 really from the calcium reactor effluent. Right. Um, my effluent also goes through a cup of uh, crushed coral to help uh, react and off gas as well, so it has to filter through that. But I, I think most of the problems I see are from are from closed windows, and I see people doing various things like um, uh, CO two absorbing media. Which works, um, but it, but you got to keep up on it. It's it, it's like a like a UV sterilizer to me. If you don't, if you're not kind of on top of it all the time, you're going to create fluxes that I think are maybe worse than just leaving it alone by itself. Um, but every time I've uh, talked to anybody who's had a problem, they're able to run outside air. I have an actual air pump outside, and it just pumps into the sump and bubbles and moves everything around. Um, Every time I've seen somebody do that, uh, it seems to it seems to up the pH by uh, 0.2 or so. Um, but pH is also one of those weird ones. You don't really need to hunt it. Uh, you know, a pH of 7.8 is fine um, if that's what your tank settles out at. Um, you know, but if you want to raise it, there are some studies that show it makes a difference, whether it's a lot or a little. That's a that's a different question. But uh, I think pumping in air from the outside is the way to go. Yeah, I just had a an air exchange unit installed in my basement. I have my tanks in, in, a, in a finished basement here in Vermont. So, and and we just had that installed last week. And I can I can tell you, it's just in terms of breathing, I could feel the fresh air in the room, and it did elevate yeah. the pH a little bit. I mean, I have to kind of like go now and look at the data in terms of the pH and what I was getting before, you know, uh, we had the unit installed versus uh, now, but. Just physically, me, I could really feel that difference, and it's just not as uh, stuffy and musty down here. So I'm, I'm assuming yeah. that it's got to help. That that's got to help. Yeah, when I added those lines into the sump, I went from around 8.0, 7.9, 8.0 to like a steady 8.2, 8.3. Yeah, I've got a cycle there, you know, you know, but that was kind of the average. 
uh, I was actually really surprised that it made that big a difference. So do you, there, and there's, there seems to be some different information out there, but, um, you know, I have a dual chamber calcium reactor. And the reason why is because I, I feel like the second chamber can kind of help absorb some of that uh, CO2. Do you, do you think a second chamber in a calcium reactor does make a difference? Is it worth it? I, I, I haven't seen it in my own experience, um, but it may. Uh, I have not, and I haven't seen anybody do a real nice, uh, a real nice experiment showing you know the different pHs coming out of there or not. Uh, I, I certainly don't think it would hurt, um, uh, but I would, for me, I would rather spend the money on a bigger single reactor chamber than two smaller ones. I'd rather load it up, get it running, and leave it for a long time. Right. I, but I'm kind of. I like to try to be the right kind of lazy. I, I, I just know that about myself now in keeping reef tanks. All right. Well, that's a good lead in there, Richard, because you, you wrote a, um, well, you gave a talk at Magna in 2017 called The Right Kind of Lazy. What, um, what was right. like the, the gist of that talk? The gist was um, have an understanding of how you think everything in your system works. And then you can decide how to automate or or set it up in such a way that you can ignore it for long stretches of time. If you don't have an understanding of how you think each piece of equipment works and what you're trying to get, even if you're wrong, I don't care if you're wrong, but, but, but as long as you're not following someone else's recipe, um, I, I think uh, you can tweak it to be as, um, as lazy as you want it to be. I don't, I, you know, I don't want to mess with a bunch of stuff. I don't want to crawl around under my house. I want to, I've always been like this. I remember once uh, someone gave me a lot of crap for um, putting a picture up with a lot of salt creep. And uh, it was like, what about the salt creep? And it's like, I don't care about the salt creep because the cover goes down and we don't see that. I care about looking in the tank. Uh, I don't want to be a slave to cleaning salt creep. And it's fine if somebody else does. Um, it's, it's, that's, what's the beauty of this hobby. I think you can set it up how you like it. So it's just, it, it's understanding your philosophy and looking for ways to make it lazy. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things would be pH. I would plumb in outside air. I also run caulk, but I don't think that does much, but I would run outside air if that fixes the problem for me other than, you know, as opposed to a CO2 scrubber, because I don't have to do anything to the air, right. the scrubber I have to pay attention to. So stuff like that, uh, you know, automatic water changes or, you know, I've got a big skim mate collection bucket. Um, so, you know, I know how much comes out and comes in, but I don't have to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, I, I always like to try to, when I, when I build a system out and especially the plumbing, I spend the extra time on doing that plumbing. I like to hard plumb my, my tanks to the, uh, to the sump and, you know, so for this new 225-gallon peninsula tank, I, I spent like 40 hours hard plumbing that tank to the sump. And part of the reason why was because I wanted to set up a, uh, a system to make water changes really, really easy. So the two return pumps in that sump also, at, one of them acts as a, um, a pump to pump the water out of the sump into a slop sink. So I could, I could do like a 30-gallon water change in like five minutes. And um, yeah, I think... That, that probably is, is something that um, I, w I want to spend as little time as possible on the maintenance side of things. And, and I think it's important to try to, you know, put a little extra work in, in the, in, in the, um, on the front end to try to achieve that goal. So I think 
I think that kind of fits into your right kind of lazy uh, thing. A hundred percent. I spent six, eight months designing the new lab here and how it was going to work and how water was going to flow and how I was going to be able to change it if I needed to. You know, and I do the same thing. I now have a 500 gallon cistern outside for salt water. <clears throat> and then under the house, I've got the 200 gallon cistern. Um, and I flip switches and pumps go and I can watch it on video and, um, and I don't have to lug buckets of salt around yeah. and, you know, yeah, it's, I think you're going a great direction and, uh, I can't wait to see the system once it's up. It sounds like you're setting oh, it up really it, nice. It is, uh, it is up and running right now. It's been going for like three, oh. three months. So yeah, it's, okay. it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm definitely, uh, is it even animal yet? Yeah, you got I, corals I'm, in it? Not yet. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna probably, okay, probably another few weeks, but I've got some good coralline algae growing in there right now, and I've got uh, 20 fish in there right now. The uh, I think the biology is good. The uh, the parameters are good. So I you know I want to like make sure that I got a handle in this tank before I start putting some animals in it in terms of the corals. I think I think that's also important with reef keeping is to really kind of when you start a new system, there's going to be some quirky things right that are going to happen with that system. So I think it's it's good to take a few months and just learn it before you, um, you know, start throwing a ton of stuff in there. And that's just my philosophy, but, um, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I remember we used to say, you know, set it all up, get it running, leave it dark for a month. Yeah. You know, once it's cycled, leave it dark for a month. Then we used to avoid algaes. Um, so yeah, I think taking your time on the setup is a good way to go. Although some people are saying now that, you know, instant cycling is working for them. So I, you know, great if that's working. Um, if I was setting up a new system, I would do what you were doing because I just don't want to get into a fight. You know, I took a cue actually from, uh, from Greg Carroll, who's watching right now. He, with his new tank, he told me that he, I think he, he had, um, basically waited four months before he started adding corals to that, uh, to that new tank and had the lights on about 10% of their intensity. So I'm I'm kind of following a similar blueprint on this tank and yeah yeah I think it's great patience it's patience patience exactly exactly what are you rushing for yes you know yes you just spent a huge chunk of money for this big system calm down right it's gonna be beautiful it right. will just yeah let I agree let let it, let it to organically evolve so um I have a couple of um questions richard from from some of the viewers and i'm going to ask you some more questions and, and speaking of greg he he's asking are you still running the coral spawning lab at cas or is everything now at your house i have this is my own spawning lab i'm part of uh i don't i don't i'm part of a lab at cas now i'm not part of the aquarium anymore um so i i'm doing the science there more than any of the day-to-day -day work uh which is why i set this lab up here also you know, having 100% control of of something is is a lot better than having 10% control of it. So, um, yeah. So so now if I want to change a pump, I change a pump instead of having asked to get approval from 12 people about a pump. Uh, but the system at CAS is going well. We're prepping for the, the spawn uh, coming up in April. And, uh, yeah, so we've got two. I've got this one set um to go uh hopefully sometime in october or november depending on where i when i can get uh oh i gotta talk to joe um new brood stock uh but yeah so the benefit of it is you know it, man 
I wouldn't want it to, to spawn in April as well. I would lose my mind. Spawning is a really intense time. It, it takes a lot to pay attention to. And having two systems spawning in two different locations would make me a little crazy and tired. So now what's the purpose of you doing coral uh, spawning experiments? What's, what's, um, what's the, uh, the purpose behind that? Doing it here? Yeah. I want to understand it more. I want to show people um, that it can be done at home. Uh, Jamie Craggs has already done it from Frags pretty much, so we know it's doable. Um, it's something cool to do. And, uh, you know, the idea of being able to supply captive bred corals just seems like a, a good direction to go in. So, uh, you know, it's a bunch of work, but I want to keep kind of plugging at it and actually seeing, you know, how lazy can I get at it is, is kind of uh, part of the real question. There's, uh, there's nobody's research grant involved in what's going on at home. So if they don't spawn for me, that just means they don't spawn for me. Uh, whereas at work, I would be, you know, at the academy or at the lab, I'd be the not secret lab. I'd be freaking out, you know, trying to make sure everything is perfect because if it doesn't work, that impacts future funding. Interesting. I mean, what could this mean for the industry if, if this is something that can be, um, you know, done without too much, I guess, cost involved and, and too much uh, labor involved? Uh, it, it means that uh, um, we would be able to be smarter about our wild collection, although mariculture is fantastic. It also means we could crossbreed stuff. I mean, there, there's so many implications, you know, so... If we're, if we're breeding corals to try to get corals that are better uh, adapted to higher temperatures and lower pHs for reef restoration, um, we could do the same kinds of things for home tanks. Um, the, the thing that's going to be the weird part for the hobby is going to be grow out. So it's about a year before you know the settled corals become something that you might want to sell. Right. Maybe eight months. Um, but you really want them to get going. Uh, so what I actually think at this point might be a really good direction is you spawn once and then in two or three years you can spawn those corals again or you start taking frags from those parent colonies. So now we've taken almost nothing from the wild. Um, you can do that locally at each, you know, at each spot so there's no shipping, there's no styrofoam or plastic bags. It's all kind of local. Um, there's there's a whole lot of benefits plus the understanding on its own you know what got me into reef keeping at all was just I wanted to understand it better for myself um, so that's what 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 really goes on in the lab here at the secret lab the secret lab so you you mentioned that merit culture is really going well can, can you explain that a little bit yeah so instead of um, instead of going out and collecting wild colonies uh, mariculture places are supposed to, you know, I don't know what kind of uh, um, follow-up and enforcement is actually being done, but let's say everyone's a good player. Um, they collect fragments, they grow them out into parent colonies out in the ocean, and then they take fragments of those parent colonies and put them on some kind of uh, movable substrate, grow those out, and then sell them to the trade. Super awesome. You can set it up in spots where the, you're not impacting anything. It's out of the way. Um, the wild reefs are doing wild reef things, and um, you're taking far fewer stuff off of the reef. 
I think I think wild collection can be great if it's done responsibly. Um, it just that's a hard thing to police. So a lot of places are saying we don't want you to do any wild collection, um, but there's a roadmap to um, cultured stuff. Do you, do you know what percentage in the United States in terms of what's imported in the United States is mariculture versus wild? Uh, I think most of it is mariculture now, but the answer is no. You want to talk to Andy Ryan for that um, or, or look it up. It might be in one of his papers, but that, that data is hard to get. Um, that data is hard to parse. That's one of the big problems with the hobby right now and the industry right now. I'm going to say industry, not hobby. I think those are two different things, um, is uh, getting that kind of data. Um, but, I, you know, just anecdotally, I've seen a steady increase in mariculture more and more. Locally here in my neck of the woods in the San Francisco Bay Area, mostly the only wild stuff I see, in SPS at least, is coming out of Australia. And Australia is a pretty well-managed fishery. Um, so I'm not really worried about that. They rotate their zones and... You know they've got people watching them, so they're they're not sneaking around so much. Um, yeah, is is so that's all I'm saying. Is, is global warming a concern in the mariculture industry right now? Is is that something that uh, we should be worried about, or are they um, able to pivot based on you know the uh, the temperatures that are impacting the the you know the areas where they're having their farms set up? Oh, climate change is going to impact it. Completely. All of us are going to be impacted by that. And and, you know, the, the thing that we may start seeing is more countries just going, no, no, because, um, you know, these animals are now going to become endangered. Uh, at, you know, if the temperature keeps going up, their habitats are going to be in trouble. And we might see countries saying, you know, well, we don't want you to collect them anymore because they're already under stresses. You know, there's arguments about collecting them to keep them in tanks, to keep them as an arc. You know, um, you know, if that's going to be a hobby thing, I think we're going to need to make a really a much better case for hobbyists doing that kind of thing. Um, you know, but we've got these huge facilities now like worldwide corals and and uh, unique corals. Um, you know, no reason they can't just buy another space and do more culturing there. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely something to worry about. And, and as local pressures get higher, um, you know, food fishing is going to get more intense. And yeah, we should all be paying attention to climate change and how it's going to be impacting us. I mean, Hawaii just got closed down, not partially because of climate change. But, you know, that's a sub argument that they have um, uh, amongst all their other terrible arguments. Um, but if Hawaii, the most well-managed fishery that we know about, gets closed down, we should be paying attention because it's getting closed down from emotional arguments, not data. And um, that, you know, that's what shut Indo down a couple of years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think it behooves the industry and the trade to be to get out ahead of that. Otherwise, they're going to lose. They could lose their livelihoods. Hobbyists will just move on to a different hobby. You know, it's it's that's why I think it's a little weird to try to put the onus for sustainability and responsibility um on the hobbyist it's we don't have hobbyists don't have skin in the game in the way the industry and the trade does so, so you know hobbyists just you know we're gonna move on to guppies you know it's <laughs> start it's just a different hobby. start breeding uh these uh, wild uh variants of these guppies like clownfish right that'll uh, that'll be the next big hot thing 
Well, we've already got crazy long-finned uh, clownfish. Oh, you know, I know. So. I can't believe how many uh, different types of clownfish are out there. It's just kind of mind-boggling. I'm into clownfish and all that stuff, but uh, now the choices are just make it much more difficult to figure out what, what kind of clownfish you want. But I don't know. I think maybe I, I, I'm an old-school guy, so I kind of like the simple stuff. Yeah, me too. Uh, some of the, you know, and, and there's so many different ones to choose from. It's like, ah, you know, Juggalo reverse black storm <laughs> i can't keep up with that oh i so i just want to add i do think wild collection is important and can be done responsibly and sustainably and i think it should be um and i think now with what's going on with covid we're seeing price hikes um for different reasons but i think we're starting to see animals wild collected starting to cost what they probably should have been costing mm -hmm for the last decade or so. So, you know, does that mean, you know, it's gonna be harder to get some stuff for, for everybody? Yeah, but I'm okay with that, you know. I don't think like um, butterflies that only eat coral, you know, should be supermarket style at the LFS. Right. I think if somebody really wants to work with one of those, it could be collected to order. Um, so I'd like to see more of that happening. I think that would be better for all of us long term. You know, it's interesting. It's just in terms of talking about coral and specifically like SPS. You know, when, when I first started in the hobby 25 plus years ago, I mean, it was all about, you know, getting wild collected corals into the LFS and, and uh, picking up some colonies and putting it in the tank. I mean, there was very little trading going on in terms of frags and, and you just didn't see what you have today. So yeah. it, it's, it's interesting how it's changed and how... Um, you know, people have a different philosophy now, and, and most most tanks are started with frags versus the uh, the colonies because there's very you know few wild colonies that are brought in. The mariculture stuff, like you mentioned, is is awesome, but um, you would think that there's enough floating around out there right now that um, that could be sustainable in terms of not you know having to bring in new pieces and relying on that stuff for the uh, the hobby. I mean, is, is that something, is that wishful yeah. thinking at this point in time, that there's enough stuff floating around out there to uh, sustain the hobby? No, I think we could do it. I think what happens is that the wild stuff is just so much, so inexpensive. Right. Um, and I think, I think incorrectly inexpensive. Um, uh, and, you know, you know, you, you buy a cheap copper band butterfly, but you're going to buy it three or four times to get one that lives. So it's... It, it's not really cheaper in the long run unless you get lucky, which people like to think they're going to get lucky. Um, so, yeah, I think it could be done. Uh, you know, every attempt that I've seen so far to set up a green shop, you know, uh, there was one here called Green Marine. They do good for about six months to a year. And then the reality sets in that people just most hobbyists are shopping on price. Uh, and what's available. So if there's another store that's got frags that are cheaper, you're going to buy one or two here, but they're going to buy the bulk over there. So I think it could be done. I think it's a pricing thing. You see the same thing with, uh, you know, the, the fish, the captive bred fish. Right. You know, you want to buy a, a captive bred coral beauty from Biota for, I'm making up numbers, 70 bucks, or are you going to go buy one, you know, from a bag lot sale for 20 bucks? I think you want to buy the one from Biota. It's better for the hobby. It's better for the world. 
Um, but it's hard to get people to do that. And most people, you know, don't even know. They just go to the store and buy whatever they're buying because right. it's a hobby. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. So let me, I'm going to take another question from the, uh, from the viewers here, Richard. Um, John Reef from Vermont, fellow Vermonter. I'm, I'm about to add algae to my refugium. I'm de debating between Cato and Leafy Spear or Ogo. I'm not sure if I um, pronounced that right. What are your thoughts? I like uh, I like Cato. Um, it's I know what it's going to do. I know how it's going to grow. I know how I'm going to harvest it. Some of the leafy stuff um, likes to be attached um, more than growing. Um, but it all depends on what what your what your goal is. Um, you know, personally, I don't think that uh, <laughs> let the comments slay me. I don't think. Um, that, that algae is a particularly great way of dealing with water quality issues. Um, um, I just, I, all the experiments I've done here, they really just don't impact it to any degree that makes it feel like it's useful. I've run a scrubber here for two years. It didn't do anything. And of course, every six months when I checked in, it's like, oh, well, set it up this way now. It's like, but I did it the way you said um but that said i'm still growing a bunch of cato or cato excuse me cato morpha down under the house uh i got probably a 20 by 30 by you know section that's lit by a radion um and i pull out you know half a five gallon bucket every three weeks um it's still not really impacting my uh my oomph so it's you know i would say for a refugium it's whatever you like so when, when you say that uh, you haven't found it to be, uh, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm um, using the wrong word here, but not effective or maybe not impactful in terms of algae with your yeah. systems, are you saying that um, you, you find that it's not pulling out the nitrates and phosphates, you're not really seeing a difference in those levels in your system while you're running macro? Correct. Okay. So what That's do you... Right. What, and, and maybe it may be my lazy, you know, there's a lot of people, Jason Langer, he, he makes skimmers and, you know, I have a... We have a semi-private discussion that he and a few of us are having because we're trying to understand, you know, does it really work? We've been having this conversation for 15 years. Um, and I am not, you know, the math is there, but what it is is you need so much out, you know, it's gotta be a lot. Even the BRS videos that showed, you know, if you've got a 30 gallon tank and you fill it with Cato, um, you're gonna keep your nutrients down. But that's a 30 gallon tank. Right with algae um if you want to have a 30 gallon tank and then a 40 gallon tank and the 30 gallon tanks your reef and the 40 gallon tanks all algae that might be a great way to go but i think some of the smaller ones i'm just not seeing the evidence that they're really impactful now i, I was about to say it might be a, a, an artifact of my lazy reefing and perhaps if you set up a system although i've seen some other people who are similar to me who are also reporting, you know, just not a budge on the numbers. Um, but it may have something to do with all paying attention to everything else in a way differently than I pay attention to things. Do, do you think the it's the corals that are doing the the, uh, the legwork in terms of absorbing up the phosphates and the nitrates? Do you think that, um, I mean, your, your tank is packed full with, uh, with corals, and, and, and over the years have you found that perhaps maybe that's what, um, you know, macro has not been working for well my levels my levels are really high 
um, you know, uh, I did a whole talk about it and it was like, with these levels, my tank should look like crap. Right. Um, so, you know, there are some things, you know, um, I, I think, I think, I think it's true to a large extent that everyone's corals adapt to the conditions that they're given in everyone's tank. And that's, you know, you're, you're, you're going to lose corals as you try to get them to live in your tank. Not everything's going to do well. Um, so I think my tank has just got different parameters than other people's tanks. I've still got a lot of coral. It grows. It might grow a little slower. It doesn't really bother me so much. Um, but I don't know how to quantify that. Um, so I, I just don't see that those those numbers don't seem to be the devil in the way that uh, some people seem to think they are. So and that all happened for me, you know, just becoming lazy when I started my old job and just didn't have time to keep up on GFO and six months went by and then I tested phosphate and it was through the roof, but everything looked the same. So yeah. Deep, I, deep I, reef says, uh, hello from Singapore question. Does rich still run crazy high phosphates? I think you answered that question. Um, what, yeah. what's crazy high phosphates for you? Right. The last time I tested it was 0.92. Wow. Which is quite a bit different than the 05. Yeah. The 0.05 yeah. people That's... seem to think is the right target. Um, and, you know, baby corals growing up just fine. <clears throat> I, I, you know, the, the, the evidence for the, for the skeletal structure being compromised seems low. It's, I, I'm just not seeing much of it. So, what are you doing right now for uh, any, any nutrient export going on right now at all in your tanks? I got a skimmer. And uh, I, I carbon dose, but I think that's more of a food source. Um, and I am actually dripping lanthanum for about a year and a half now, I guess. Maybe it's even longer because I'm, I'm lazy. I'm not going to drip lanthanum into a 10 micron sock that I've got to change every day. Mm. So I talked with Bingman, Craig Bingman, a bunch about it two years ago. And we decided uh, to run it into my skimmer. So it's kind of you know, very low dose. I think I run 30 or 40 mil of lanthanum into 3,000 or 4,000 mil of DI. And then that drips into the skimmer through the neck and right into the water um, at about 30 or 40 mil of that mixture a day. Um, so I, I'm about to get a little more aggressive on it to see if I can bring it down. Uh, but for the last six months, I've been feeding like crazy here because of the baby corals. What, what's your advice to somebody that has an al algae issue in their tank that's got very high phosphates and nitrates and the tank is obviously not in balance like, you know, your tank is where it can sustain those high levels? What, what's your advice to somebody that uh, is in that uh, position? To try to get herbivores, herbivores, including you. You are probably on most tanks to get it going, the major herbivore that needs to do the work. <laughs> um, um you know, when I set these up, I went through a cycle. I would set these up and then went to Palau for three weeks uh, on, on field work. And I came back and two of the tanks were full of long algae, just covered. I took a canister filter, a hang-on tank canister filter, set that up. I pulled out all the algae I could by, with my hands. I scraped all the algae off of everything that I could, scrubbed it with a toothbrush, netted as much of it out, and then let the... Uh, let the filter take the rest of it out over a couple days. Didn't bother with anything else. Um, it wrapped around corals, but then it came loose again and got sucked up by the filter. So that was like two days of paying attention to that. And then I added more herbivores again. 
and never had the problem come back. So you're an advocate of natural means in terms of eradicating algae. Yeah, I think uh, I think I think the the mistake people make is letting it letting it become eutrophic. You know, letting it phase change into an algae tank. Look, you know, algae and cyano they all grow in the same conditions coral grow in. So it's 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 no surprise that they're going to show up, and you're going to need to do something about them. You've got to win and let corals take a bigger uh, role in in your in your substrate covering. Um, and you know that isn't like a set it forget it. You don't just drop one kind of snail in there and hope it works. I've got urchins, I've got snails, I've got fish, and you've got to then keep the algae crop down. So those animals can actually get it. If you've got long wavy algae and you're expecting an animal to take care of it for you, it's just not going to happen um, in a small tank for sure. So I, I think it's I think it's getting ahead of it and then being um, being smart about it. I think or just shifting your thinking to I've got to do this kind of work, which is a funny thing for the lazy guy to say. Um, but in the long run, you know that few hours I did of work was way easier. I just had cyano in these two tanks and I just put them dark for three days and it's gone. And I had it in this bottom tank as well. And I, that's why it's so dim in there. I'm just bringing the lights back on today, but I'll tell you, the cyano's gone after three days. Um, once it gets a foothold, you gotta kick it in the pants and then you can get by it. But it's your herbivores that are gonna keep your algae away, but that's a mix. And it's going to be different for everybody's tank. So you've got to kind of play with it to get the right stock that you want. What about chemicals as a quick fix, like chemiclean, fluconazole? What, what, what are your thoughts on those? And do you think that those potentially could have long-term impact on, on the, um, the bio, biology of a tank? Well, I've done chemiclean um, a couple times. We did chemiclean on the big tank at the academy um, once. That was a lot of chemiclean to add. Uh, they must have I, loved I you think, for that order. Yeah, they did. Um, <laughs> I think it's a. Uh, I had to sign a, a an NDA. Um, actually, on that. I think. Uh, I think chemicals have their place, but I think we go to them too quick. I think. I think we've got this idea that we want magic in a bottle, and I, as you point out, I think magic all has its price. If you've if you've just spent four months letting your bacterial populations, you know, calm down and populate and um, stabilize, and then you're going to dump antibiotic into the tank, you're definitely going to have an effect, whether that's a good or a bad effect or no effect or, or no measure, no, no effect that you actually see. There's going to, it's going to kill stuff. That's what it does. Right. Um, so if you can avoid that, you know, I think that's a better way to go. I think I think going to a bottled product as your first step, um, I think long term is a stunting thing for you as a reef keeper. Yeah. But I, but if, I think I think the goal of being a reef keeper is becoming a better keeper. Um, and some people that's not the goal. Some people's goal is to have a nice tank and they want it clean fast. Um, you know, with some of the stuff people add, I'm still seeing about 50-50 success. And in there, I'm still seeing way too many stories about bad things happening that would make me trepidatious about adding those things to my tank. <clears throat> you know, I've got, but then I also know a lot of people that I respect who have used those things and say they work great. Right. Yep. What, so, what, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on on dino uh, flagellates? I mean, back 
when when I first started the hobby, you know, there was pretty much you started a tank with live rock, and these days, you're um, a large majority of the tanks are dry rock tanks that you know get started with dry yeah. rock. And uh, I tried starting a tank with dry rock once only, and I had one problem after another, including the dinos. So it it just seems like there's more folks out there that are having that issue with their tanks. And I don't know if it's related to the lack of bi biodiversity in the dry rock versus the live rock. But um, what, what's, what's your advice to folks out there that are battling that, uh, that demon? I mean, those things can really, um, you know, kick you in the pants. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I had him in the last version of this system, I, I, I tried a bunch of stuff and then turned the lights off for four days and then never had them again. Light dusting here and there, but I, you know I was getting snotty stuff. Um, but you know, with the tank that you were saying that you had it on, were, did you do the long, the long ramp up? Uh, no. You know, or did you go? Yeah. See, I think, I think you're going to have progressions of dominance in the tank, and you, you know, we used to talk about this in the 80s and 90s. It's like you're going to go through these phases, right? And um, just know that they're going to happen. Um, so, you know, if you get dinos now in your tank and your big tank, you just shut off the lights for a while and they'll, they'll go away and you'll restart it back up again and see if they come back or not again. Um, it's when these pests get a foothold, then they can take over and then they become very hard to eradicate. But if you see them coming, it's a little bit, you know, I get dinos in my tanks on some of the sand and cyano sometimes in small amounts. I generally don't care. I'm not going to nuke the tank because of that. Right. So I think patience and 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 figuring out a game plan. You know, if you want to nuke it, nuke it from space and nuke it early. Right. Um, you know, whether that's the four or five days of being closed or or doing whatever treatment you want to do, or you know, if, if you've got rocks that you can remove, your algae and dino problems become really easy because you just swap rocks out as that happens right. if you need to. Right. So. I think there's things to do, I, but I think it's patience. I think it's really patience. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read a lot of folks have success with um, upping the nutrients so they dirty up the tank, raise the nitrates and the phosphate, and then also yeah. run UV at night when, um, you know, the diners, I guess, are um, in the water column. And that seems to, to work for folks. Great. I These things that that seem to work for folks... I would love to see simple studies done with them. People talk, you know, whenever I say this, or often people go, we're not going to do a peer-reviewed study. I don't want a peer-reviewed study. <laughs> I want a nice piece of evidence that you would accept from another reefer. That's more than I did this and it seemed to work. So there's very, you know, simple ways to do it, um, to record it, and to, so we, we all can get better at knowing what each person did. Um, um, I hate it to become like some of the, you know, the ginger is still ginger for treating ick is still a thing that won't die, um, and there's there's just no evidence of it at all. So I'm not saying none of these things work. I'm saying for me to think they're going to work or for me to want to try them, I, I want I need I need more than just somebody said it does. Anecdotal, yeah, you need more. Yeah, than and that. anecdotal, you can rec you can do an anecdotal study in a way that's more compelling, you know, but saying I did this and things looked better. Most of the time, I, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Plus, plus I need to know all the other 20 things that you did to fight right. the dinos at the same time. Right. There's a lot of variables. So, 
Yeah, and and people tend to say what worked is the last thing they tried or the thing that cost them the most yeah. money. <laughs> um, negating, of course, the two months that they've been fighting it already uh, and changing a bunch of things. So again, you know, not saying these things don't work. Uh, I'm saying uh, I, we need more compelling evidence so we can move forward in a way that's not hodgepodge. We can be consistent and we can understand and then maybe we can actually get to reef recipes for some of these things. There you go. All right. So another question from a viewer, Richard uh, Macy's daddy. Richard, have you ever tested? This is, a, I guess, a biology question. Have you ever tested the microbiome in your tanks? And what do you think of new services that will map that for you? Yeah, I, uh, Aquabinomics, when they started, or Aquabiomics, I think that's what they're called. Um, we did a couple of runs of, of, actually, we did a tank from the secret lab and we did the main tank to compare because that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, I had some stuff. I'd have to dig it out to see what it actually was. I had some stuff that seemed that other people didn't have. Um, I, uh, but, you know, I think that's neither here nor there. I think, I think it's got the potential to be really useful and interesting. Uh, I think we just don't know enough microbiomically. I think I just made that word up. Um, I think we don't know enough yet to be able to make any decisions about anything. So I think it's really interesting data. And the guy running that site is is a scientist and keeping all that data and, and looking for trends and things. So I think if we keep throwing um, tests into that bank, uh, we'll eventually get some useful stuff out of it. Um, yeah. Gotcha. All right, another question from Deep Reef. Um, what are Rich's thoughts on adding bacteria to the tank? Um, I, I, I'm, I have mixed thoughts of that. So, you know, when something, because again, where's the, the evidence, the compelling evidence that it works. And unfortunately for me, I think there's way too much non-compelling evidence. So it makes it hard for me to see the signal through the noise in that stuff. Um, that said, you know, when things are going bad in my tank and I'm feeling awful, uh, I'll buy a bottle of bacteria because pouring a bottle of something into my tank that's supposed to help makes me feel like I did something. <laughs> um, and I guess there's also the idea that inoculating with different bacterial strains is probably not a bad thing, uh, although it seems like you know some strains are going to win. So I, I, I don't think <clears throat> by adding some stuff like that we're going to get a shift, and I don't even know if you'd want to shift. Uh, we just don't know that yet. Um, but I tend to look at it once in a while, like an adversity thing, you know, gotcha. I do want to add, why not add more? Just like I add pods, you know, and, you know, rock, I don't swap around so much anymore because there's, there's pests that I don't want. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think I, yeah, that's what I think. I'm just going to babble some more so I can stop myself. <laughs> so Greg Carroll has a question. What does Richard think about nano bubble scrubbing? He's just he's just trying to get my goat. Uh, I, I think there's 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 no compelling evidence that that is a useful thing to do, except to flocculate. Um, basically, turn your tank into a skimmer. So if you put um, small bubbles into your tank and stir everything up, it's going to attract that goo in the same way as your skimmer attracts that goo, which then you can export. Um, but that's something we've known about. But but you get something very similar if you just storm the tank with a baster or a powerhead and filter that stuff out as well. So yeah, nanobubbles. I there's just 
the evidence the evidence uh, is is almost like the evidence for the aqua equalizer or eco aqualizer it's just just i've seen nothing compelling and i've i've looked really really hard gotcha um this is an interesting question atf in the house out of the testing being done for covid do you see technologies and testing for other fish diseases in our water in our tanks sure uh, as any of that science gets better, um, there will be eventual applications for us as it becomes cheaper really is what, what matters. Um, you know, and the mRNA stuff I think will be really interesting. I, that's not my field, so I don't know much about it, but you know, just any science of testing at levels like that is going to, uh, benefit us at some point in the future. Gotcha. Um, so Richard, there, we, we were talking a little bit about um, live rock versus dry rock, and there's been like this whole shift in the hobby in terms of aquascaping with dry rock and these negative um, space aquascapes, these really cool, interesting shapes, you know, with dry rock that you can, um, you know, spend your time just really crafting things and, and, and just these hellacious uh, aquascapes are um, pretty amazing and all that sort of thing. What are, what are your yeah. thoughts about uh, that sort of thing with dry rock? And, and um, if you had the choice between the dry rock and, and live rock starting a tank, what would you go with? If I had my choice, um, given the supply of live rock, these yeah, days. well, yeah. So, so I, I think essentially there is none. So you're not going to get it. <laughs> I was just talking about Matt Peterson, and we were trying to figure out if there is any actual live rock coming, or if it's all cultured like you got out of Florida yeah. now. I think that's the case. Yeah. Um, even when we could get live rock. Um, I wanted cured live rock. Um, you know, I, I, I thought the risk of getting bad stuff is pretty high. Um, and uh, so when I would get live rock in, I would put it in a, in a tank, you know, with an air bubbler and water motion for a month or two before I used it anyway and let it, let the bacterial turgor push all the stuff out and, you know, get it nice and ready. But I like the shapes. Um, yeah, the stuff that I got in has got amazing coralline algae on it. Amazing. Yeah. And it also certainly came in with a lot of critters on it. But one of the things that I did, I followed their advice on, on their um, website, is to do several dips in very high uh, specific gravity water, like between yeah. 1.035 and 1.040. And it, it worked. I mean, it flushed a lot of stuff out. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. The, but not and, everything. You know, thing and then if you go with just you know dry rock you're you're starting from nothing so it's 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 two just different ways of getting the same thing um you know the the crafting of the tank i remember setting up the the display tank and spending so much time with how it's going to look and you know and then in a year it's just covered with coral anyway so it almost that's what i, I keep telling I'm people i was like you know what you yeah. spend all that time making this awesome, cool aquascape. But if you're going to do it right, the coral's got to cover it up anyway in the long run, right? Yeah. So I, I kind of look at it now like um, squinty, so it's fuzzy, and I get nice basic shapes, and then figure and imagine how the coral is going to go on that. I, you know, But I think some of the tanks are cool. Some of the arc with the arches yeah. and, the, and, the, and the floating stuff, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. I know, I know. Again, it depends on your goal. I'm setting up a tank that's going to be here for 20 years. You know, if I lived in an apartment and I might be moving in three years, I certainly would be more interested in having it look really good sooner. 
um, and then knowing that you know I was going to break down. So it's it's all your different goals. There's no there's no one size fits all in this hobby. So uh, Richard, I want to be um, uh, cognizant of your time. I don't want to like uh, take up too much more of your time tonight. This has been awesome, <laughs> and again, and thank you so much for for being a guest on the uh, on the show. I can go on asking you a ton more questions, and I and uh, well maybe we'll have you come back and um, I'd love to. and uh, talk some more. But um, I don't know. In, in in terms of you know advice to somebody that's been in the hobby and wants to kind of like take it to the next level and is is has been having some fits and starts what what are some of the the the, the more important things a, a hobbyist should you know think about in terms of kind of getting to that next level or or getting over that hump in terms of having success um, it really um taking a look at your husbandry methodology you know what and your philo your but not your methodology your philosophy and if you don't know what your husbandry philosophy is, think about what that is, because you've got one. Um, and then taking a look at that and seeing what what you believe that is supported and what you believe just cause. Um, and then start looking at what you think you can pull out or add to that. Um, so I think it's all about examining where you're coming from and why, and then filling in those gaps with information. Uh, and so I think if you want to jump up, you know, uh, uh, befriend people who have long-term tanks or, you know, whatever you're trying to copy or emulate and, and see what they're doing and, and, and have more esoteric, broader discussions about what and why and how rather than looking for recipes right you know if you're looking for that silver bu bullet then you're going to be kind of going down a rabbit hole i think i think so too i think that, that i uh yeah i i think uh, i call it magic in a bottle and i think or, or magic and like i said before in magic and all classical magic everything has a price and so if you're using it and you don't know why something's changing somewhere else um so yeah, I think that and figure out what you want, what do you want and then figure out how to make that. So if you're trying to jump up and you're going to a bigger tank, you know, talk to a bunch of people with bigger tanks. If you want a tank that's going to last for a long time, talk to people who have got tanks that have lasted for a long time and find out, you know, oh, I don't need to spend so much time on my aquascape because that's not going to matter or oh yeah, wow, I better put these outlets if I'm having them installed I'm going to have them put up in the up on the up on the wall instead of down at the bottom because that's going to make my life easier. It's going to keep everything away. Oh, I could put all my electrical on a shelf above the tank, so if there's any flood at all, I have no risk of bad things mm. happening. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of little things like that that, that are practical and really useful. Um, and then there's the husbandry philosophy that you know everyone's got to have an understanding of what they're doing, and that moves as you move through time. Right. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. It, it did. It did. I think, um, you know, my, uh, my takeaway from that is to really make sure that you have a, a game plan in terms of husbandry and maintenance and, and take care of the little things because, um, you know, you got to be really organized and you got to really, you know, um, 
even though you say that you know, uh, you know you're a lazy reefer, you know I understand it's it's a different type of lazy, right? And you gotta kind of like set the 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 platform and and um, uh, you gotta have that solid foundation, right? That's it. The right kind of lazy is setting up your foundation so you can be lazy later on. Simulated reality. Thank you very much. That was very kind. Great stream. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Really appreciate that. Well, you're welcome, Richard. Can I plug something? Yeah, I got I got two podcasts that I'm doing because they're fun. One is called The Skim Mate. Uh, yeah, somebody asked about Terrence that. Bugazzi. And um, uh, and one is called. Can I say a, a, a bad word on your show? Or do you not do that? Talking Reef S. Uh, with Ben Johnson and you can get uh, and I'm just enjoying those because th there's no sponsors and there's no beholdenness and it's just kind of straight and it, they're really kind of so fun. how can folks find that those streams uh, at, at uh, on um, on Facebook you can find talking reef s um, and uh, <laughs> on the web you can go just look up the skim mate podcast or uh, I think uh, the one with Ben is now on my YouTube channel which is Seth head and you can find that there. Are you on Instagram? You're on Instagram as well, right, Sephead? I am. I think I'm Sephead on Instagram, but I haven't. I, I don't look at Instagram as much as I should. Gotcha. Thank you for my shameless plugs. Uh, plug away, Richard, man. I mean, <laughs> I uh, I am very much appreciative of, of you being uh, being a guest and taking the time. Any uh, any final thoughts for the folks out there? Uh oh oh my website the Rich Ross yeah, yeah. which is easier to remember. Yeah. That's getting a revamp in the next week, oh, good. and then all you should be able to find all that stuff there. Um, any last thoughts? Um, forms are wonderful and terrible places. Use them with caution, um, and vet people who give you easy answers. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it's a. I think it's a great fun hobby. We should enjoy it, and being responsible. Uh, and calling out bad players who are making it possible that the hobby is in danger for the rest of us is a good thing. But enjoy it. Uh, be responsible because we love the animals. Why wouldn't we do that? Yeah, you know, you brought you, you, you just brought up something that I was going to talk about with you, but perhaps we could talk about the next time we uh, we have you on. The um, folks, check it out on, on Richard's site. The the uh, the love letter to the hobby, right? That's what it's called. Right. Yeah, that's on reefs.com reefs. as well. Com. Love. Uh, Love letter to the yeah, a love letter to the hobby. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and yeah. I, I certainly uh, recommend reading that. That's uh, that 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 is that makes a good read. Um, Thank you very much. I worked hard yeah. on that. Well, Richard, listen. Thanks again, man, for for being a guest, and um, yeah, hope to have you back again. So that will do it, folks, for uh, for this show. And my next show will be. I'm going to plug here. Next, uh, next Thursday, January 28th at 7 p.m., another great guest, Michael Paletta, will be on. So we'll, uh, we'll pick it up uh, in another week. But until then, be safe, be well, and we'll see you next time. Right on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Richard.